1: We have kind of a little bit of a different case tonight. This case actually takes place in Delaware County, Iowa, in a town called Earlville. And it's a very, very small town, population around 700 people. So very small place. And we're talking about a couple named Todd and Amy Mollis. They had been in Iowa their entire lives. They were both born and raised in Iowa. The couple actually met at the county fair and I cannot think of anything more wholesome than that. The humble meeting at the county fair. So they both enjoyed outdoor activities such as hunting and fishing, which I really would expect from a couple that's from such a small town and a rural community, I would really expect that hunting and fishing would be kind of among their hobbies. Amy was an RN at one time at the hospital in the emergency department, and uh, Todd is described as a devoted, hardworking father of three kids, and he had spent most of his life being a farmer. Very humble man. He seemed very, very caring, and he was just described as being very, very hardworking, devoted to his family, just kind of like your average rural town guy, right? So Todd not only had one farm, but in 2016, Todd, Amy, Todd's brother, and his father became owners of additional farmland. Now Todd had obtained more land with his dad and brother also at one point, so it seemed like as far as accumulating assets was concerned, Todd was really successful at this point. Now, for this case, I used the Crime Shack podcast, which I am loving so much. This was actually the first episode that she ever did, and I loved it so much. So if you have not checked out the Crime Shack yet, honestly, go there. Obviously, please listen to me first. Check her out. She did an amazing job. Her name is Michelle. And um, leave her a review while you're at it. So she's doing a wonderful job. I also used the um, 48 Hours episode and Nancy Grace Crime Stories episode on this as well as a few other websites that I will list in my show notes. So please go check those out and see my sources for this. So this story is sounding really, really great so far. I mean, we're talking about a small town community, two loving people who meet at a county fair, they enjoy the same things, they have a family, and it's looking great, right? But you know that we wouldn't be talking about it if it was all great. So we do have some problems it becoming um, prevalent in the marriage. Now, in the Crime Shack podcast, the host mentions that as a general rule in small towns, good news travels fast and bad news travels faster. And I related with this so much. Me and myself living in a small town and a small rural area, I relate with this so much. But that really couldn't be truer for this case. They were both sharing a lot of things about their marriage. They were sharing their problems. They were talking about their problems with other people, friends, and outsiders. And it just seemed like so many people knew what was going on between the two of them. And that seemed kind of odd to me that they both were reaching out to so many different people about what was happening in their marriage. One thing that did stand out to me is how many friends it seemed like Amy had. There were a lot of people that seemed, like I said, to know about the problems in this marriage, but it seemed like Amy just had a ton of friends. There were a lot of different friends mentioned. A lot actually testified at the trial that we'll talk about later. So it was just a lot of people involved in her life. She was talking to a lot of people reaching out. And Amy would often complain that Todd worked too much. Amy was kind of the type of person that liked going out and doing things. Tom, Todd was more of a stay home kind of guy, a homebody. And so those those things they didn't really have in common, which I understand because I'm so much of a homebody that if I was with somebody that constantly wanted to go out and do things, it would really bother me. And I'm sure my my preference of lifestyle would bother them. So I can understand that part. Now, Amy's friend states that she had been unhappy in her marriage and that she hadn't actually been happy for years. And in 2013, while Amy was working at the hospital, Todd actually found out that she was having an affair. Now, after the affair, Amy had quit her job at the hospital and they had been trying to kind of work things out. They sought marital counseling and um, she was really trying to make things work with Todd. And so she was going to stay primarily just working on the farm, spend more time with Todd, really try to work together on their marriage. Todd states that she was actually doing this willingly because she wanted to spend time with her family. She wanted to give up the hospital life, devote more time to her family. But according to her friends, Amy really felt like that was the only option that she had. And she didn't really feel like Todd was ever going to trust her again after this affair. Todd said that in their marital counseling, that the counselor had actually suggested that they would have full disclosure. And the only thing that I ever read about that was Amy would be—it would be necessary for Amy to tell Todd where she was at at all times. And so, if she would go to the store, go out to lunch with friends, she was constantly having to tell him when she would get there, when she would leave, and it just seemed like there was a, a lack of trust there. But I never could find anything that actually said that Todd was doing the same thing. So I'm not sure if it was both ways that he was actually disclosing everything that he was doing or if it was just more about Amy telling him because he just did not trust her at all during this time. There were only certain friends that Amy was allowed to see during this time, and he was actually timing her when she was out of the house. So Amy's friends would make jokes about it with her, and they would call her the P.O.T., and that was an acronym that stood for Prisoner of Todd. So it kind of surprises me how much the friends knew there was such a lack of trust in this relationship, and there were some things that were happening that maybe weren't so great, and they were kind of aware of everything going on and trying to help, but it was more of a joke at it than anything at this point. Todd's side of the story was very different. He would go on to say that they basically spent every moment together on the farm, that things were going well, and that they were pretty happy and that they enjoyed spending all of this time together and he didn't have any problems. Now in the spring of 2018, Todd does notice some changes in Amy's behavior. Amy would go off into the bedroom alone a lot with her phone, which she hadn't been doing previously. Since he had been down this road before, Todd immediately becomes suspicious of Amy. So he begins to kind of wonder about it. He looks over their their phone records and he discovers over 100 text messages between Amy and the farm manager, Jerry Frazier. Jerry Frazier was actually a field manager for the Mullis farm. He worked for them for quite a while before this point. Todd actually called Jerry to confront him and ask him, what's going on? I'm seeing a lot of text messages between my wife and you and I just want to know why. And Jerry basically says, no, there's no other reason. It's just kids. We're talking about showing animals at fair, and we're talking about sports and kids' activities and scheduling, and it's it's really nothing. It's not a big deal. And so he denies that anything else is going on. Todd does feel a little better about things after Jerry denies that there's anything going on, but he still calls Amy's stepmom to ask for advice, which if you remember, I did say that they are involving so many people in this marriage, and the fact that he called the stepmom to ask for advice suggests that, wow, they are really involving a lot of people instead of talking to his own wife about it. So Amy's stepmom actually suggests calling Jerry's wife to find out what's going on. And I kind of get the impression that due to this being such a rural place and such a small town that they actually probably already knew each other. And so it was probably not such a big deal to just call out of the blue and ask, because they probably had known each other for quite a few years. That's the impression I get. So Jerry's wife tells Todd that she can't believe that anything would be happening, that they do have a happy marriage. She didn't believe that Jerry would be seeing anybody else and she dismisses it. She just doesn't even think it's it's legitimate. So there's probably nothing to worry about. And so it does make Todd a little bit more comfortable And he actually goes a few days later and apologizes to them. He calls them each. He calls Jerry and Jerry's wife each to apologize to them for having handled it incorrectly, he says. And so he reaches out to them and and apologizes. Now, unfortunately, that would turn out to be not the case. And Amy had actually been seeing Jerry for a little while. Jerry, as we know, was married. He was a father of two, and Amy just quite frankly had liked the attention that she was receiving from Jerry. They had been meeting in secret on the farm. They were meeting on back roads or motel rooms sometimes, and at first, it seemed like it was just kind of a purely sexual relationship, but at one point, Amy was really developing feelings for Jerry, and she was speaking with her friends about how she would eventually like to marry him. Amy had previously made it known to Jerry that she did feel like a slave or a hostage in her marriage to Todd and how unhappy she was. And so he was very, very aware of Todd's insecurities and jealousies and very aware that Todd was not going to handle this well if he did find out. Jerry, of course, goes back to Amy and says, Hey, your husband is calling me. He's on to us. And they kind of figure out that they probably need to slow down on texting. Jerry's immediate solution to it is we need to slow down, but Amy still wanted to keep in contact with him. So Jerry actually got a Gmail account, and they would use Gmail and communicate back and forth via email. Amy went on to tell her friend Terry that Todd had confronted Jerry and that he had denied it, but tells her the real reason behind the text. And so even some of their friends were well aware of the the affair that was happening, And she also tells her that at first the relationship, like I said, had been purely sexual, but now she was really falling in love with him. And it seems to me that Amy was the one kind of developing the feelings for Jerry when he was a little bit maybe trying to keep his distance from the situation. At the end of August 2018, Amy's friend Terry had attended a medical conference when somebody came up to her and actually mentioned in the conversation that they had heard rumors of how Amy was, quote, being naughty again. So when Terry brings that up to Amy, she decides to be very upfront about the rumors with Todd, in an effort to minimize it. So she goes back to Todd and she tells him, "Hey, I heard these crazy rumors about myself and I heard that I am sleeping with Jerry, and can you believe it?" And just kind of kind of tries to minimize it in an effort to make sure that if Todd does hear it, that he's not going to take it serious. This is not happy about these rumors happening and said that he was just really upset at the time that why would people even have this this idea? And that he wasn't happy, but she did try to be a little bit upfront about it in, in an effort to just kind of squash it before it even became a rumor back to him. Amy's friend, Terry, who had previously given advice to both parties, like I said, she was she was aware of what was going on. Both Todd and Amy were talking and asking to, her for advice. She warns Amy that you're putting yourself in a really terrible position and even went as far as to use the words Todd will kill you if he finds out. So Jerry states that Amy had told him also that if Todd found out about the affair, he would have no problem making her disappear. She said if he finds out that she believes that he would actually kill her. She even pointed out to a friend at one time that if she ever came up missing, to look for her in the New Timber. So that's the part that's so extremely disturbing to me. If I had a friend that said, hey, if I come up missing, this is exactly who did it and exactly where I am, I think I would be figuring out an escape plan for them. But it didn't seem like they actually took it seriously. It was more like kind of a a joke. I don't know at this point how seriously they were actually taking it, but they knew that Todd was actually capable of doing these things. They believed that. One of her friends actually described Todd as, quote, a person you don't mess with, end quote. So that alone tells me that if you actually believe that he is somebody that you wouldn't mess with, then you know he's capable of something that you don't want to see. Amy also had a conversation with her brother that month, stating that she would want to leave and that she was asking for help in finding an apartment. And he was also willing to help store some furniture for her. So as soon as the crops were out of the fields, she was planning on leaving and they were going to file for a divorce. On November 6th, Amy went in for a uterine ablation procedure. And it was an, kind of an in and out procedure, just uh, an outpatient surgery that day. And so by the morning of November 10th, Amy was outside doing some work on the farm with Todd and their 13-year-old son, Tristan. I'm going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll discuss more of the incident that occurred on November 10th of 2018. Hello, we are back, and now I'm ready to discuss with you what occurred on the day of November 10th. So remember, Amy had just had the uterine ablation performed four days earlier on November 6th. There was testimony that Amy was still experiencing some bleeding at this point. Amy had made breakfast for Todd and Tristan as they set out to work on the farm that morning, sometime around 9 to 9.30 a.m. According to Todd, they were preparing for a delivery of piglets, and Amy had really wanted to go out and help them. That morning, her friend Carrie texts her, quote, How's it been going? Been thinking of you guys. One minute later, Amy's response reads, quote, thanks okay still very tense around here just not sure of anything anymore and that would actually be the last text ever sent for baby's phone so what do we think that means what do what do you think that was the tension that was happening because she had just gone in for this procedure and according to Todd everything's fine but according to her things are tense and so i'm not really sure what's what that's about but unfortunately We will ever, we will never really know Amy's side of the story. Todd said that when Amy got ready to go out for work, uh, he suggested that she go try to clean light fixtures in the barn. And so she's up on kind of uh, buckets and things like that to reach these light fixtures. And she's reaching up and she's cleaning them. And he describes how she keeps getting dizzy, and so she's coming down, and she's kind of grabbing herself and just feeling really dizzy and and um, needing something to hold on to. And Tristan keeps asking her, are you okay, mom? And she tells him, yes, just dismisses it. I'm fine. I just keep getting dizzy. So they both kind of at some point try to convince her to go inside, but she wants to stay outside and she wants to help. So instead, Tristan brings up to Todd that they do need this pet carrier out of the red shed. And so Todd says, yeah, Amy, that would really help us out if you would go get this This pet carrier. And the pet carrier was just kind of a a small pet kennel. And they were planning on putting some kittens in there so that they wouldn't get run over by the heavy equipment that they were going to be using that day.
0: We take this few seconds off to inform you, our valued, loyal listener, about the best health and fitness podcast shows from the Nespod studios. Join us as we give you the best of the best health and wellness updates you can rely on for the treatment of chronic health problems
1: And so Todd notices after a while that he hasn't seen the pet carrier yet and that Amy's not back. So he sends his son Tristan to find his mom. And so the 13-year-old goes off and he goes to the red shed to find his mom. Now to describe the setting a little bit, the red shed, if you go into the door, there are things in front all the way. And so it's a very, very narrow spot that you can actually walk through as you walk through the door to the left-hand side. And as he walks into the red shed, he finds his mother, Amy, lying face down on her hands and knees on the ground inside of the red shed with a corn rake sticking out of her back. He immediately screams for help. If you are unfamiliar with a corn rake, this has to be such a horrifying experience for this boy. It's a very, very sharp, heavy duty farm tool. It kind of looks like a pitchfork. It has four prongs and they're typically very sharp and they're very rounded. They're rounded more than a pitchfork is. And as you can imagine, accidents do happen on farms that this is definitely kind of a freak accident that you would never think of happening. So instead of calling 911, Todd goes, he finds her, and he takes out the corn rake from her back in order to get her out of the shed. He tells them eventually that there just wasn't room to get her out because it is such a narrow space that he had to actually get the corn rake out of her back in order to get her out of the shed. So he puts her in the truck and takes her to the hospital. During this time that they're on their way to the hospital, Amy is actually seated on 13-year-old Tristan's lap. He's just holding his mom like a child. And she is probably bleeding, I'm guessing, Um, although that wasn't said. I'm I'm guessing there's a lot of blood, but um, he is actually holding his mom, who is at this point is not responsive. And like I said, Todd had already removed the corn rake, and he's on his way to the hospital. As he's on his way, he frantically phones 911 as he's racing down the road in his truck, and they instruct him to stop and try CPR and he does that, but Amy is not responding. Todd says during the 911 call that there is actually foam coming out of her mouth, and according to a medical examiner on Nancy Grace, he said that usually foam coming out of the mouth would be caused by pulmonary edema or lungs filling with fluid because of heart failure. It could mean that the forks have hit the lungs also, and they are filling with blood possibly as well. So obviously they are going to need to investigate this and an autopsy was performed immediately on Amy. The medical examiner almost immediately calls it a homicide. But how would they know that from the autopsy that it was a homicide? Because it appears that it's just some sort of freak accident. Well, her body, the wounds actually told a different story. Blunt force injuries were found on Amy's face, knees and hands. And wounds that were determined to be defensive wounds. When they investigated her injuries, they also found that she had six puncture wounds across her back. And how would there be six puncture wounds with only four tines on the fork? It's important to note that also the six puncture wounds were in different directions. There were four facing one way and two facing at a different angle. So that would actually mean that instead of one sole incident, she had been impaled with the rake twice, possibly three times. There were a couple of drops of blood where he reported her to be found, but other than that, there was no visible blood in the red shed where Amy was found at all. In February 2019, Todd Mullis was arrested for Amy's murder. Todd maintains his innocence and says that he was not aware of the affair at this time, and Tristan told police that he was with his dad that entire day. So after having his trial being delayed four times because of COVID, which we saw a lot of 2020 and even in 2021, Todd's trial finally took place in the fall of 2020. The star witness, unfortunately, for this entire case is their 13-year-old son because he was there when all of this happened. Can you imagine the trauma that this poor child has been through all of these years And there are even some sources that allege that Tristan knew of the affair all along, and he had been scared for his mom. There would end up being some cracks in Tristan's story. So when he immediately said, no, I was with my dad the entire day, that wasn't actually true. There were some times in the morning that he wasn't actually having eyes on his father. And it was a big farm. I mean, these barns are huge. It's a big area. And so I'm sure there were times that they weren't actually seeing each other. So there were a couple of times that Tristan would leave to get water in the office toward the front of the barn. And he admits before the trial that he was gone for maybe less than a minute each time initially. But then during the trial, he actually testifies that he doesn't know how long he had been unable to see his dad. So the story kind of keeps changing and he's really unsure at this point. Now, Tristan says that he never saw any blood. His father's demeanor never changed throughout the day. And prosecution would argue that Jerry had just as much of a motive. And if you think about it, he truly did. I mean, he he had the same motive and really he had access to the farm. So who's to say it couldn't have been Jerry, right? And the defense argues that there simply wasn't enough time for Todd to actually accomplish this without Tristan having noticed or without having some something go wrong and not being noticed. So they kind of want to create a doubt that it could have been Jerry. Jerry had actually spent the entire morning 45 minutes away that day with his college-age son, and so his son was also his alibi. They were doing work and watching college football that entire day, and they actually had cell phone records to back up those claims. So he was pretty much dismissed as any person of interest. If Amy and Todd were to split, his entire life, though, would be split in half. The farm would be split, he'd be paying child support, and possibly alimony, and they argued that that was plenty of motive for him to want Amy to disappear. The prosecution actually played the 911 calls, and they argued that during the chest compressions, Todd can actually be heard stating something like, quote, cheating whore, end quote, end quote, Go to hell cheating whore. End quote. Whether or not he actually does say this, this is a genius move on prosecution's part. When he's questioned about it, Todd states he cannot hear anything and he doesn't recall what he actually had whispered. That alone instills reasonable doubt in the jury, and that's all they need. So that was a genius move on their part to actually create the doubt that. Todd was actually saying those things and Todd had absolutely no defense and no idea of how to back that up. They bring up during the trial the fact that Todd and Amy hadn't actually shared a bed in the last five months. They also bring up, as I said, that she had defensive wounds and she had bruises on her knees. That could arguably be a sign that she was possibly in a fetal position during the attack. There were also searches on Todd's iPad that were linked to his Gmail account that was uh, killing unfaithful women. What happened to cheating spouses in historic Aztec tribes? He had also researched the placement of organs in the body. What could that possibly mean? So to me, that's that means that he's researching the best place to hit someone to kill them because he's researching what organs to hit. And he had also searched things like was killing more accepted centuries ago, characteristics of cheating women, did ancient cultures kill adulterers, and gaping chest wounds. The medical examiner on Nancy Gray states that Amy would not have died instantly from her wounds. He said that depending on what was actually hit, she would have hemorrhaged internally and it would have taken several minutes for her to bleed out. She would have also been in excruciating pain from the rake stuck in her back. Todd was actually found guilty of murder in the first degree, and he was led out of the courtroom in chains. He was sentenced to life in prison without parole, and before he left the room, however, he did proclaim his innocence one more time. So that is the story, folks. Thank you so much for joining me, and we will be back with our spotlight of the night. Thanks. Hello everybody. This is tonight's spotlight and tonight I thought I would do another domestic violence story since that was our topic this evening. So, um at, this is a story about um, Gina Sean and Joshua and this is from a website called This is from a website called www.g-s-j.org and I am going to be reading it word for word, of course, as I do all of the Spotlight stories. So it says Wednesday, June 9th, 1993, our son in law poured gasoline in the living room up the stairs and right into Gina's bedroom, lit a match, and walked away. Walked away with not a burn on his body, walked away with no carbon monoxide in his lungs, walked away while our daughter and two grandsons died in the inferno. And then when you click on to meet Gina, Sean, and Joshua, it Says, I have a story to share, a story about my 26-year-old daughter, Gina Marie, my three-year-old grandson, Sean Edward, and my seven-month-old grandson, Joshua Lee. They were murdered in an arson fire in Jeannette, Pennsylvania on June 9, 1993. My son-in-law has been found guilty of this dreadful act of violence and is serving three consecutive life sentences. All this, four lives totally destroyed because of domestic violence. In 1993, 135 people died as a result of domestic violence in Pennsylvania. Gina, Sean, and Joshua, they were three of those murders. This same year, in Westmoreland County, Pennsylvania, where the crime took place, seven people died as a result of homicide. Gina, Sean, Joshua, they were three of those homicides. In fact, when the local paper did their year-end highlights, it reported the following. The coroner's office investigated seven deaths it classified as homicides. Of those victims, four were male and three were female. Two of the male victims were boys classified as 10 years old or younger. Sean and Joshua, they were those two boys. Who is the victim of this hideous crime? To answer that question, you'd have to look at the complete picture. They call me a surviving victim of a homicide. I've always thought that to be a contradiction of words. How does one survive a homicide? My daughter and grandsons are like a pebble thrown in a pond. The ripples that produce the circle from the pebble just keep going. I, as a mother and grandmother, and my husband, and uh, as a father and grandfather, have lost our firstborn and only daughter and our two beautiful grandsons. Our son has equally lost. He no longer has a sister, and he is an only child. So that's just a small part. Um, It talks about the beginning of it, and it says, how did this all begin? It started with my daughter looking for the American dream, looking for the house with the white picket fence, two cars in the garage, kids, a dog in the yard, and a wonderful husband. After she graduated from high school, she began the search. She first found the husband and had a child, Sean Edward, and was born December 1st, 1989 in Maryland. The marriage ended in divorce. The story continues. She gets involved with another guy. He decides that the grass is greener in Pennsylvania. The dream package is waiting for them there. That was February of 1991. It wasn't long before I got a phone call that this friend had beaten up Gina during a birthday party that she had given him. He had hit her, bit her on the arm, and punched her several times in the stomach. The stomach punches had the most relevance to me. She was pregnant with child number two. The police were called, Gina went to the hospital, and her friend went to jail. Now comes the next day, Gina decides he didn't mean it. He had been drinking, so all is forgiven. She doesn't press charges. She doesn't file a protection from abuse form. Isn't it amazing how bright sunlight makes everything look tolerable? He was in control. This will conclude the episode. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you hear, please leave a comment and subscribe. Thank you.